The Start On Demand. On demand. Sewage spills out onto the River Trail in Wolseley, and the United Firefighters of Winnipeg are demanding video be released. That and more with Mayor Brian Bowman in our monthly visit. What's school actually like during a pandemic? Global's Marnie Blunt got a peek inside, and we speak with a gym teacher who gives us his perspective from inside, or should we say outside the walls of that school. And we had a fun conversation today asking the question, what were your favorite shoes? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, February 24th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Lots of important stuff to discuss this morning, including our monthly visit with Mayor Brian Bowman at 745. But I, can I just quickly say welcome back to Jeff Fortier's face? I can see it again. <gasps> Loren, he has shaved for the first the- time in how long, Fortier? Oh, it's been about two months. And like just before Christmas. Take wow. a good look at the camera there, Fortier, so I can see it. Oh, look at you, Smiley Joe. You know, <laughs> Jeff Fortier bears a striking resemblance to Michael Bublé. And I don't know how many people appreciate that, just what a good-looking a young man Jeff Forte is. <laughs> You're going too I, far now. No. <laughs> Listen, it's true, if buddy. I can be an angel, you can be Bublé. That's how this is going, Forte. You stick with it. You got a great smile. Don't cover it up with that scraggly beard. You're not a pirate. <laughs> I'm not a pirate. Ah, <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, nice to see. You. Uh, of course, now that it's just as it's cooled off a little bit again, Fortes. Uh, you said you went out for a walk yesterday and noticed it was quite cool. Oh yeah, you can feel it now. <laughs> I don't. I don't have that. Uh, the fur. I don't have the fur to keep my face warm anymore. Yeah, yeah. So you're not alone. A lot of guys grew beards out over the pandemic, and of course their hair was getting longer when I got my hair cut. Uh, my barber said it was taking them just a bit longer to clean up all the hair that was mm-hmm. piling up on the ground. So <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my next thing is getting a haircut. When's that? I don't know. <laughs> but it's, I, I, it's next on my list. I miss, like I haven't had a haircut since July, and I could go now, I know, but uh, I kind of just want to see where this goes, you know? Now you're, it's sort of a challenge. <laughs> Like what? How unruly could it get? How much gray do I have? I don't know. Maybe. It's crazy times over here. What was the name of the singer in the '80s who had her hair like down to her feet? Was it Crystal Gale? Was that Crystal her name? Gale? That sounds familiar. Yes. Wasn't that her thing? She had really, really incredibly long hair. Long hair. That's yes. getting in the way of a lot of bathroom stuff, and I'm not interested in that. <laughs> I can't believe I've never thought about that. <laughs> that was my first thought. What do we? No, that's a lot of hair. No, it's, it's just kind of been fascinating. And then, then I've realized I'm just incredibly lazy, and it's so great that it's winter because you just throw the toucan in the parka. And I feel like we're going to all emerge like snakes from the den and shed our skin and be like, oh... Should have paid more attention to this over the past few months. <laughs> okay, so Mayor Brian Moman joining us at 7.45. Lots to discuss, including, Loren, uh, you were sent a letter yesterday uh, from the United Firefighters of Winnipeg. What's uh, what's up with that? 
Yeah, and I uh, this comes from the United Firefighters of Winnipeg. This is the union representing firefighters. As we know, that there was this independent report that was done into this 911 call involving WFPS that concluded there was not only inherent bias, but uh, potentially some racism involved with the firefighters who initially refused to provide some care or delayed getting care to an Indigenous woman who had a self-inflicted stab wound. And so there was an independent investigation into this. And then the city has since been uh, making its own investigation into the firefighters. There's this video that's involved. Uh, not sure if it comes from inside or outside the ambulance that was also used in this investigation. Well, now the union's saying... Show us the video then. And so they've put out a memo to the mayor calling on him to release the video. I'm not really sure that he has any say in this at all. It comes down to there's disciplinary actions that are underway. There's a, a, a third party investigation. There's also questions about, you know, what happens with these firefighters. So I don't think he really gets to say whether or not the video should be released, but we'll ask him. And uh, I don't know, this seems to be a bit of a, I wonder what sort of play is involved here when it comes to the union asking for this video. It's four minutes and 16 seconds. And there was many allegations made against um, uh, these firefighters in question. And so I'm curious to see where this goes, guys. We, If you want to see the letter, we've uh, shared a picture of it to our 680 CJOB Instagram story, where you can also see a picture that uh, was shared by our friend Frosty Face at Frosty Face MB. And uh, he noticed a foul smell coming from the uh, the river trail area in Wolseley, and he went out to check and saw that uh, some, some overflow and some sewage had been dispersed onto the trail. And uh, some I saw, Loren, you later spotted that it some... Other media outlets had uh, been alerted to this as well. Um, rather disconcerting. He was talking about how there was garbage and condoms and, and things like that in this stuff on the on the trail. And he's standing in his boots. And Greg, uh, not uh, not the most pleasant sight. Nope. Fifteen thousand liters is what the city estimates uh, flowed out of that combined sewer. Uh, at the end of Clifton Street into the Assiniboine River. Now, of course, because the river is so low. That, that pipe is above the ice level. And so there's actually physical, visual evidence of something that happens multiple times a year uh, around the city. There's 70 discharge pipes like this. This happens more than a dozen times on average in so our city. So much saying that there's actually a website dedicated to updating Winnipeggers on the number, you know, here's where your most recent sewage spill occurred. Billions of liters every single year. And I think for the most part, it's invisible to us because of the murky mud bottom rivers that run through our city. So when it happens, we don't necessarily see it. But that was a genuine visual display, a representation of what it looks like. You've got the dark sewage combined with with the white snow and ice. And of course, it just presented a very stark picture, a stark reality of what goes on in our city. And so um, never mind just the hardworking volunteers that created that river trail in that part of the city, the devastation for them. But it should be uh, one more thing to open our eyes as to uh, how much disrespect we have for our rivers in this part of the world. Yesterday, I'm walking home from work and I uh, get to the Osborne Bridge and I look to the west. I was just curious to see what the state of the river trail was in, given that heat that we experienced this week. And uh, there were a few, very few people walking on the trail. The, the walking trail suddenly were, was snow covered, was suddenly icy. And then as you look 
basically to the furthest point where the river bends and goes around the corner, there's a, a drain right beside that to the right. And it looks like it had there had been some runoff because you could see this massive, massive puddle that had overrun the walking trail. And sure enough, uh, I checked the Forks website later on and they had shut down that portion of the river trail from Osborne all the way to Hugo. It looks like they've already, they already went down and pulled out all the trees that they had set up in the middle of the trail. So I guess that's going to be done for the rest of the season. But as I'm perusing social media uh, last night, uh, I was looking on Instagram as I tend to... My, Greg, I know for you, the doom scroll is on Twitter. For me, <laughs> it's a uh, doom scroll on Instagram. And I stumbled upon our friend Frosty Face Manitoba and he noticed that the Wolsey River Trail smelled kind of foul, so he went out and had a look, and there's a picture of him standing in rubber boots on the river trail, and uh, yeah, there had been some runoff and uh, some sewage that had sort of spilled out, and it's just, it looks pretty gross, and he's talking about how there's garbage in this stuff, and there's uh, condoms and and things like that, and uh, we requested to speak to the city about this, we asked if we could talk to somebody from the city today, and uh, they they did issue a statement. But turns out we have Mayor Brian Bowman on at seven forty five, so we figured we'd ask him about that. But uh, this has this, a lot of you. You did find something, Greg, on Twitter about this. Somebody who was pointing out, like, well, now our winter wonderland is is ruined. Yeah, it is, and so that section of the river which had been so beautifully maintained by volunteers essentially all the way from uh, Wolseley, the Wolseley area, all the way through to the Cinnaboyne Park. In fact, our friend and colleague Tristan Field-Jones posted some pictures on his social media over the weekend. He traversed that entire length of that trail over the weekend, and it's uh, obviously been an impressive uh, work by volunteers and by citizens to create something for for citizens and and their kids and for the general public to enjoy during this pandemic and now to to see it ruined in that section is obviously difficult to take. I noticed that they were uh, going down and they they have uh, fire pits and some other chairs and other things that they were trying to recover before uh, things got out of hand. So it's just disappointing because as you look at the longer term uh, forecast, at least for the the next week or so, we're going to be getting some cooler, if not colder weather, almost ideal conditions for skating. And Loren, as is typically the case. It's that yin and yang, yin and yang with regard to the weather and the relationship we have with the rivers. Uh, when it's beautiful out, it's almost too warm to skate. And then when it's uh, freezing cold, it's uh, too cold to go out and enjoy it. So just when it looked like we were going to get some in-between weather, the plug is going to get pulled on large sections of this uh, recreation trail. And for sure, there's the questions and, the, you know, the sadness people might have about the inability to skate there now and, and not just because of the weather, but because of the spill. But as always, there's bigger questions about the amount of untreated sewage that ends up in our rivers. And, and Winnipeg, to its credit, unlike some other municipalities, does report this and does have a website on its page. And so last year alone, I just counted there were 26 different uh, spills of untreated sewer release into the environment as they cause it, which is usually into the rivers. And it's from pumps. Sometimes it's from wastewater main breaks. Sometimes it's from manhole blockages. Sometimes it's from, you know, a, a sewer main leak or firefighters might have to access a certain pump and then things happen because of the aging infrastructure. The question is, how long do we, what, what's an acceptable amount if there is one? And what's the fix? And how, how do we compare to others? I just 
found a number just to totally gross you out that in 2017, there was reports that municipalities in this country saw 250 billion liters of raw sewage leaked into the environment. That's 86,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of untreated sewage. That's up from a report five years prior to that. This report is already four years old. I mean, is there an acceptable amount? Well, we're trying to find what that amount is and balance the the cost of making sure that we have the ability to treat this sewage. We're going to be spending billions of dollars on the North End sewage plant to reduce the amount of uh, effluent that goes into the river. And based on what I was reading last night and this morning, they're going to be be reducing that number from... 75% 75% of all the sewage uh, and, and wastewater in the city to 84%. So even after these billions of dollars are spent, there's still going to be uh, runoff and overflow going into our rivers. 1,000 kilometers of combined sewers in our city, one-third of the houses in Winnipeg are connected to that system. So there's a long way to go to fix this and a lot of money. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, as you've been hearing in Global News, Skylar Peters has been telling you about smart shoes. Red River College students have helped to develop an electronic shoe sole to help diabetic patients prevent injuries. So we're going to use that to inspire a conversation about shoes. What's your favorite pair of shoes you ever owned? Text us at 204-780-6868 for a chance to win a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. we got Jeff Braun here. we got Kelly Moore, Jeff Forte, and, of course, Mackling McGarry McNabb. I'll just quickly start us off. Um, I liked playing basketball when I was a teenager. Wasn't good at it, but uh, I was victim. I fell victim to, I think, the first marketing outside of McDonald's commercials when I was a kid. Uh, the first marketing that I really fell victim to was the Reebok pumps when D Brown won the basketball, the slam dunk contest in the early 1990s. And they show him pumping up his shoes. And then he does the no look dunk where he puts his arm over his face as he goes in for the jam. I thought, I want those pumps. Those are going to make me slam dunk. I never did learn to dunk a basketball, <laughs> but I loved my pumps. And then I got a second pair later on, the blacktop version of the Reebok pumps. I loved those shoes. Anybody remember, uh, Greg, you might remember because Kildon in Place, they had that, uh, and maybe they had them elsewhere, they had Shaquille O'Neal's Reebok pump. Sure. Size 22 on display. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have a family live in those shoes. <laughs> they were gigantic. It was unbelievable how big they were. I forgot about the pumps, and if uh, memory serves me correctly, if you over-pump them, they would explode and a powder would sort of come out of them. Oh, oh didn't Austin Powers do that? Did he? Yeah, I believe in the first one. Oh, maybe that's where I maybe that's where I saw it. <laughs> yeah, it never happened to me. I didn't. I don't think I over because I got too tight. If you overpumped them, so but I loved my pumps. Jeff Braun, what about you? Oh, the exact opposite. The the Reebok pumps were for the nerds' bread, and you would have been soundly <laughs> made fun of at my school if you wore those. Uh, we were all about the Air Jordans, and in grade eight, I begged and begged and begged for them. I was. Even on you know our basketball team in junior high, so that was that was my hook. It's like, look, I'm playing basketball. 
I need these sweet basketball shoes to do it right. They had the little window in there where you could see the air inside them. And uh, and I did get them, and it was glorious. It's one of the, my favorite possessions I've ever owned. And, I, and it, was, it wasn't that fad thing where you get them and then you don't use them. Like, I wore those shoes out over the course of a year. So that, that was a great pair of shoes. Uh, it must have been, I, I want to say, like Air Jordan 3s or something like that. I don't exactly know. I think, and you're right, a lot of guys had Air Jordans, and I just, I didn't want the Jordans because I didn't like Michael Jordan at the time. <laughs> I just thought the pumps were cool. It was neat. It was like a toy. What about you, Kelly Moore? Well, I don't remember what the exact name of them were. I, I want to say platform shoes, but I don't think that's probably it. But it, when I was uh, uh, a teenager in the mid-70s, there were these shoes. They were they were almost like a two-tone shoe, but they had this huge sole and heel. And being vertically challenged, uh, I was only about 5'10 or 5'11. Uh, you know, it was kind of nice to uh, see uh, the rest of the world from about 6'1, 6'2. So, uh, loved those shoes for a while. They weren't the best on the feet, but man, I sure felt tall. Yeah. Vertically challenged? I'm 5'6. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've hung around athletes all my life. So, trust me, 5'10, 5'11 is vertically challenged in that world. <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, Loren McNabb. Well, I'm still thankful that the jelly sandals, do you remember those? They were like, they were literally called jelly shoes and they looked like a jellyfish on your foot and they came in different colors and they were clear and see-through and they always just reeked by the end of the summer. I'm glad those are gone and in the past, but I still wish I had never thrown out this pair of shoes I bought around 1996, 97. I was living in Ottawa, going to school, um, you know, barely making it by, scraping it by with some, in some cases, three jobs in a year or three jobs, different places to work in a week. And I bought a pair of Steve Madden shoes because for some reason, I think Steve Madden was super popular then. And they were easily $80 and they were ugly. Like platform was just a big swath of Navy cloth that basically covered it was supposed to be a sandal, but it covered the foot from the toe all the way to the ankle bone. So I don't know how that was a sandal. And I wore them everywhere so much that people would ask me to leave them outside because they stunk so bad. But I was so <laughs> proud of them. And I hung on to them for years because it was kind of like that first thing you ever really bought yourself that you could afford, but you couldn't afford. You know, you weren't supposed to put your money on that because you didn't eat properly for a few more days. And yeah, that was my that'll still go down. They were so comfy, not remotely attractive, but so comfy. And well, yeah, and if it's the thing that you were able to first buy for yourself, that's a big, big deal. Of course, well, you want just to that have brand those. name to buy for yourself, right? Because the parents would always say, "No, no name's fine for you," or we'll get a knockoff because of just cost sometimes. But yeah, <sighs> G Mac. Well, I'm a Nike guy. I've been a Nike guy since grade five, I suppose, when I started. Uh, I used to buy my own Nike all courts. I would get the ten dollar obligatory. Uh, funding from my parents, and then I had to top it up with whatever I wanted. And yes, I'm old enough that I could buy Nike All Courts back in the day for 19.99, and they were a big deal. But I've so I've always been a Nike guy. And then I discovered, I guess, in the mid '80s, that David Letterman in his suits would wear Nike wrestling shoes. And so when my parents and my uh, half-brother and sister went to California back in 1988, I had one request, a pair of white Nike wrestling shoes because couldn't get them here in Winnipeg at the time. And uh, boy, oh boy, were they some of the most comfortable shoes. It was like wearing slippers 
I absolutely love them. I cherish them. I have a black pair in my collection right now. And if you've never tried them, I suggest you try them for wearing around the house. They're sort of like moccasins. Fantastic. Nike wrestling shoes. Correct. They're like, I've got a high top on them. They're, like I say, basically like oh, slippers. Yeah. Absolutely love them. Okay, they look good. Uh, Forte, you? I've always wanted, when I was a kid, I always want those shoes that have the wheels in the, the heel. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't have to walk. You just, you know... Just slide on over. It was, you know, I always thought that was cool. I never got them. But I'm so lame when it comes to my shoes. I've been wearing the exact same pair of shoes. I just buy a new one every season. It, they're just black vans. There's nothing special about them. I've got a pair that's in my closet, brand new, not worn yet. Ready to go. Ready to go. I, I'm, waiting <laughs> for, I'm waiting for the snow to melt because uh, the ones I'm wearing right now are, have the white stains from all the salt. So yeah. I'm very, very lame when it comes to uh, that's my shoe. Lame. You like? Are it? they also your dress shoe? Well, that's that's the thing. Like the new pair will also be when I'm <laughs> going out, you know, a night on the town. Then I got a nice black pair, <laughs> totally clean. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, just like the river trails have been flooded by overflow and sewage. Greg, our text line is being flooded on the favorite shoes we have enjoyed over the years. Greg has a great story. Yeah, the text messages smell much better than what we've seen on the river. I had a pair of black low-top Reebok pumps back in the day. I wore them everywhere, so much so that they were literally falling apart. Still... I refused to toss them. My mom threatened and threatened to throw them out, but never followed through until she did. Woke up one morning during summer vacation to find them gone. She actually took them to work to throw them out because she knew I'd dig them out of the trash at home (laughs) if she tossed them at home. Well done, Greg. <laughs> Terrific story. That one's going to be tough to beat if you ask me. <laughs> Keep those texts coming, 204-780-6868 for a chance to win yourself a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia. And I'll just quickly mention Tony's as well. It says, grade 9, 1987. British Knights high tops, $140 worth of junk. They looked good, but that's all. I always wanted a pair of British Knights. They were sharp. But at the time, they were too expensive. It wasn't until I started playing basketball where I was able to say, come on, Mom, I need them. I need them. I will never be a good player without them. Yes, that's right. That's it. I was convinced. I was convinced. <laughs> the commercials convinced me that that's what was needed. Uh, in the meantime, we were wearing, a lot of us were wearing these shoes during school, and that's what we're talking about right now. School, because for six months now, Manitoba students have been going to schools in masks, sitting f- six feet apart from friends, and avoiding certain sports, and even choir. Yeah, and you know, and part of the challenge with this is that in order to keep the numbers down and contacts limited, parents and caregivers haven't been allowed into schools. And so we're just hearing from the kids anecdotally what life is like about about their core cohorts, their separate classes. Uh, you know, even in my kids' case, there's sections of the school they just don't go to avoid passing too many kids in the hallways. And so many of us, while we've pictured what it's been like, Greg, we haven't really been able to see it for ourselves. I read to five classrooms at Sherdwood School yesterday over. Uh, Microsoft Teams, I wasn't allowed to see them. So even virtually, I wasn't allowed to see what was going on. But this week, Global's Marnie Blunt got a chance to safely observe how one Winnipeg elementary school is managing. She visited Forest Park School in the Seven Oaks School Division and joins us now. Good morning, Marnie. Good morning. So what does class look uh, like uh, for students these days? 
Well, as, as you can imagine, it obviously looks a little bit different than what we'd be used to seeing. Um, obviously, space is a huge thing. They're much more spaced out. That, that school actually hired two additional teachers to help accommodate that and kind of have smaller class groups. Um, of course, and there's lots of space between the desks and students in younger grades that sit at kind of shared tables do have plexiglass barriers between them. Um, of course, hand sanitizer everywhere, directional uh, arrows to make sure that, you know, they're going in the right direction and right flow down certain hallways. So really looks of a pretty similar to what any other public building looks like during the pandemic. So how are the kids taking all this? That was the big question at the start, right? How are the kids going to manage the mask? Kids don't want to be six feet apart from their friends. Adults don't, let alone kids. And so what were they saying, Marnie? Yeah, absolutely. Every teacher and the principal actually seem quite proud of the kids. The kids, this is just the norm now. They are used to wearing the masks. They're used to the plexiglass barriers, the different protocols they have to follow. In fact, uh, lots of the kids, especially the younger kids, when they're outside for recess, they aren't really required to wear their mask, but they still do. I mean, part of that might be <laughs> because when it's cold, but they're just so used to that routine that even when they aren't really necessarily required to wear their mask at all times, they still have it on and the majority of kids would have it on even out at recess. So they've really, this is just, I know we've heard the, <laughs> the term new normal quite often, but this really just has become the normal for these kids. And uh, the teachers all said they were just, it's remarkable how quickly and well the kids adjusted and adapted to, to all these changes. What are some of the biggest challenges you've heard about? Well, of course, there are some different challenges that come with it, and not everything went completely smoothly. Um, one is that gym class has been um, moved outside, so they kind of have to take that, obviously, Manitoba winters, that that is going to be a bit of a challenge. And uh, gym teacher Robert Enns has taught outside every day but six days this year. He says it does come with challenges, but it also is really beneficial for the kids. I think it's important for kids, especially because we live in Winnipeg, to kind of embrace the winter. Um, and just kind of realize that just because it's cold outside doesn't mean you can't be outside and run around. So I've got my list of games that I can do when it's really cold because kids have their mitts on. I've got my list of games that I got to do when it's really, really windy. So yeah, as you can see, he does have to kind of said he has to wake up every day and kind of decide, you know, what he's going to do, you know, actually like look outside the window and uh, decide what they can do based on the weather. So that's kind of a new challenge that he hasn't had to think about before. Um, the other challenge, um, just because gym class has been outside doesn't mean the gym's sitting empty. They've actually converted that now into the music room. Um, students sit on the floor spaced apart. The teacher speaks to them over a microphone and they uh, obviously are focusing mostly on percussion instruments, but they actually, the teacher said one of the biggest challenges is that they can't sing. Normally that's the first thing she would go through with them is choir and singing classes, but just because of public health protocols, they aren't able to do that. So that's a different challenge for her is finding uh, ways or different kind of lessons that she can give them, mostly with percussion instruments. Um, and of course they have to bring their own supplies, own drumsticks, that kind of thing. So that's definitely been kind of a new challenge for her as well. Jeffrey Forche would agree with me. Why would you learn anything other than percussion instruments? It sounds like an <laughs> ideal music class to me. And uh, like I said, Forche would probably back me up on this. Uh, Marnie, obviously the real estate, you, you outlined just how classrooms have sort of had to been shuffled around and how are they using technology to uh, overcome that as well? Yeah, um, so for the younger classes, they aren't using, um, they, like older students are doing obviously a lot more remote learning. The younger classes aren't doing quite as much as that, but the teachers are really kind of embracing different kind of um, 
technology, different platforms. And social media is a way of engaging with parents more. Um, that school in particular has been using their Instagram account to connect with parents. So really, they're just looking at kind of, you know, different ways because parents obviously can't come in to see choirs. They can't come in to see concerts or even for parent teacher conferences. So they're just kind of looking at different ways and embracing social media a bit more this year to kind of help help keep people connected with what's going on in the class. Global's Marnie Blunt joining us live on 680 CJOB. Marnie, thank you very much as always. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, we often ask you when we don't know, like, is there a place in the city that can do something like this? And I think Melanie could use your help on the f- subject of your favorite shoes. You've been texting us at 204-780-6868. Your favorite shoes that you've ever owned. Greg, do you see Melanie's text here? I do. She says that she has a pair of Green Roots sneakers. She's had them since 1996. <laughs> that's dedication. Uh, she loves them, but when you find a shoe that, a shoe that you like, hey, that's, uh, that's uh, something that goes on. The developed, pardon me, they developed a small hole in the toe by 1999. It's a scenario here. But ha- they have sat under my desk ever since. I still have them, hoping one day to find someone will be able to fix them. I've looked in stores over the last 22 years, but no shoe has had the style, color, and fit of that magic pair I loved so much. I need to see a picture of these shoes. Yes, Melanie, cough up a picture, please. Yeah. Like, what are they? Do they help you like lose weight and cook your meals? Like, why are you keeping them for so long? <laughs> Just her favorite pair, I guess. But what, what we need your help is, is do you know somebody who can fix this for her? I, I mean, I wondered out loud with her is maybe at least talk to the shoe doctor in Wolseley. I don't know if they if the, see that the, the fabric tears. I don't know if that's something that can be done. I've had sho- like soles repaired with the sole has like the has come completely separated from the shoe. But I've had mm. the, that glued by places like the shoe doctor. But I don't know if the fabric can be fixed. But if you know someone who can fix Melanie's shoe. Text us at 204-780-6868. Just wear them, like Fred Flintstone style, with all the toes sticking out eventually. <laughs> no? No one's liking my suggestions here. I need a picture. I can't. I, I need to know 20 years later. Yeah, like those, 20? Is it 30? How long is this that 20, she's been hanging yeah, on? Yeah, uh, 20, 22 years, she she's says. She's had the shoes for 25, and 22 years they've been sitting under her desk. That's amazing, Melanie. So keep those text messages coming at 204-780-6868 on your favorite shoes that you have ever owned in your life. Uh, I mentioned the Reebok pumps. Uh, Greg, what was it for you? The uh, the It's the wrestling shoes, the it's Nike wrestling Ni- shoes? Nike wrestling shoes, correct. Again, Loren, you had uh, Steve Madden? Steve, Was it Madden or Maddens? I actually don't know. Yeah, Steve Madden. Yep. No, I'm saying Maddens. Is it Maddens? I think it's Steve. I think the name is Steve Madden, but maybe you refer to them as your Steve Madden. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, I had some sweets, and also I'm remembering now with that root story from Mel. Was it Melanie at uh, seven fifteen that we shared? She has those shoes. I remember buying a pair of Roots boots, also that um, I saved forever, only because you know once you spend that money on certain things, you're like, these are. I'm wearing these boots till I die, basically, because they cost so much. <laughs> What's that episode of Friends? Where Monica buys a pair yep. of three hundred dollar boots and yep. they absolutely destroy her feet, they kill her feet. But there's no way she's admitting that, and they walk uh, all over Hell's Half Acre in New York, and eventually she has to take these boots off after uh, finally admitting that they were killing her feet. So uh, I think we all have 
an adventure like that with shoes that we really liked that were maybe too small and we just had to be honest with ourselves that, yeah, these don't really work for us after all. I remember going to Las Vegas uh, 10 years ago and I wanted to get, we stayed at the MGM Grand and I wanted to get, uh, I'd been told I need to try the Fat Tuesdays daiquiris. They're basically rum slurpees. Right, you can buy them anywhere. The, the, every hotel's got them. Some of them are branded Fat Tuesdays. Others are just this generic thing. But I knew that there was a Fat Tuesdays in the hotel, right next to the Rainforest Cafe. That's that that loud and restaurant, tropical restaurant with you know animatronic animals and the like. So we get dressed to go out, and my girlfriend at the time was wearing like these five or six inch stiletto heels. They were awesome shoes. They looked so good. But M- have you ever been inside MGM Grand, Greg? Yes. Loren, have you ever been inside it? Oh, yeah. It is yeah. huge. It gigantic. is gigantic. So, and the lobby, of course, is on one side of the hotel, and the Rainforest Cafe is on the other side. So we walk over there, and we realize there are two Rainforest Cafes in the MGM Grand. There's like a little just takeout spot in the, or a gift shop, I think, in the food court which is right beside the lobby. <laughs> so we walked all the way to the one side and all the way back. And once I got my Fat Tuesday, she said, I got to get rid of these shoes. So we had to go back up to our room. So one trek back and forth across MGM Grand in those shoes, and she was defeated. And I felt terrible because I have no idea what it's like to walk in heels like that. Like the Ren, how do you, how do, you do it? Well, I've been wondering that lately, actually, because I hardly ever wear shoes beyond say sneakers or Sorrells over the winter to go out and so you know I'm at home right now in my socks sometimes it's bare feet and I'm I was just thinking yesterday I wonder what kind of pain I'm in for when I go back to work and have to regularly wear boots let alone just heels you know just regular shoes and I've never been good with heels to the point when I was working for Global TV and I remember one of my producers in Global National texted me after because there's a shot of me talking to an interview subject and walking with them I think through the airport or something and you text, he's like, have you ever worn shoes before? Because I just, I was like, clop, 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 clop. Like, just like, I've never been good at it. I don't get them. I don't care how much practice I have. I, you know, I appreciate them. I have a lot of pairs, but I'm like an hour in and those things are off. You need some cowboy boots, some dress cowboy boots. Were you into cowboy boots at all? No, no. Weirdly, no. I like them though. Like, it's not, a, I, I don't have an issue with them. I just never really had my own pair. I had a pair that was too small, and I would just never admit that they were too small for me. My grandpa had given them to me, and I, I, I traipsed around Calgary and those things for, for years at Stampede, and finally I uh, just I had to give up the ghost. Uh, they are um, they are in shoe heaven now. They're, they're they actually made their way out of my garage this summer, Loren. If you can believe that. Hey, Melanie, by the way, we did get a couple of suggestions on where you might be able to get your shoes fixed. Melanie has this pair of 1996 Roots sneakers, and there's a hole in the toe. We asked, are there places in the city where you could get maybe get that fixed? And Brenda says, shoe guy at Grant Park. Don suggesting Canadian footwear, maybe, uh, on Adelaide. And another listener saying there's a place, there, there was a place called Nabal's Shoe Repair. Best place, if he's still open, Portage and Cavalier. And like I said, I was wondering if maybe the shoe doctor in Woolsey could do something like that. Thank you very much for those suggestions. We will have to investigate. Mr. Mayor, good morning to you, sir. 
Good morning. How are you guys doing? We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Anytime we get to listen to Iron Maiden to wake up, it's a good day. Uh, Loren, why don't you start us off? It's always a great way to start the day. It is. I have to admit, it gets the blood pumping, and that's good, because as always, Mr. Mayor, we've got a lot to get to, so thanks for taking the time. Yeah, Um, nice to join you. As you might perhaps be aware, the union representing Winnipeg's firefighters sent out a memo last night calling on the release of this video associated with the incident that led to allegations of bias and racist attitudes. Just as a reminder to our listeners, those allegations were the result of an independent investigation that not only concluded there was a failure to deliver adequate care immediately, but it also found that these firefighters conspired to present the same narrative after the fact, and she concluded in this report that it did not correspond with video evidence provided, which is why we're talking about this ambulance video this morning. Do you think, given that this report was uh, leaked at some point, do you think this video should be shared as well with the public? Well, a couple, couple thoughts, um, and, and, and I might be a little bit long on this one, Lauren, um, but I, I'm thinking about the patient involved today and um, um, obviously um, thinking about, about her care and, and the care of, of patients that, uh, that need to call 911. Um, also, there are men and women that work for the Winnipeg Fire and Paramedic Service in the stations right now. I want to thank them for their, their efforts. One of the ways in which uh, we respect them is we we follow the disciplinary process when it's needed. And right now there is a confidential hearing that is occurring. Um, and I, w- I would urge the UFFW and, and their, the union leader, Alex Forrest, to respect the collective agreement process. And of course, the, um, the hearing, which is underway. Um, uh, he is alluding to uh, video, uh, some, some videos. Uh, I'm not a party to that hearing, nor have I seen or am I aware of any, any of the related videos. With that video in question, though, uh, you know, I think that their argument, and I'm not, I certainly don't want to speak to them. And in fact, we asked Alex Forrest, president of the UFFW, to join us this morning. He declined, saying the statement speaks for itself. To be frank, yeah. he hasn't accepted any interviews in the last three weeks since the story arose. And so we would like yeah. to ask him these questions ourselves, Mr. Mayor. But, you know, the, the argument is in his statement that this would help clear the firefighters. And so is there an argument that, given that the report was leaked, this video should be not leaked, but shared publicly as well? Well, I'd like to see as much information as can be made publicly available, made public um, in, in the appropriate time and, and process. Um, you know, I'm not sure if, if the, uh, the head of the union has disclosed the identity of the, of the firefighters that are, that are uh, a party to this. Um, but look, what we're doing right now is, is we, we have, as a city, commissioned an independent investigation, which you have reported on. Um, that's resulted in a couple of things. There, there is a, the confidential hearing, the disciplinary process is, is underway as we speak right now. And there's, there's a couple of things that I've been looking uh, to, to see from, from all leaders, uh, um, myself included. I've acknowledged systemic racism exists within our municipal government, within the Winnipeg Fire and Paramedic Service. I've called on, on other leaders, including the UFFW, to at least acknowledge systemic racism exists within the department and within their union. They've refused to do so to date. And more importantly, work collaboratively with the city and with the, the other unions involved in the department uh, to redouble our efforts to combat racism. That's why we've got anti-oppression and cultural competency training that is going to be mandated and begin shortly within the department, but also citywide. As, as far as I know, we're the only level of government that's mandated, not just mandatory reconciliation training, but also this anti-oppression and, and cultural competency training so that we can we can mitigate racism in all of its forms uh, throughout the public service. Just a quick follow-up. We want to move on. 
Is there a way to have the results of that disciplinary hearing made public in the past when there's been allegations or disciplinary actions taken against uh, city employees, specifically with the WFPS? It's just we're just told that the action has been taken, the matter has been closed, and we never know what that action is. Can there be a push for that to be made public, Mr. Mayor? I hope that I hope that we can find a way. I mean, we are we are working within the confines of of the collective agreement and other other legal parameters. Um, I, I'm committed to trying to get as much information in, in public view as as possible. Um, but again, we're we, we got to respect the collective agreement, and and we're we're doing that. Uh, and I would urge UFFW to do the same. We also want to talk this morning, Mr. Mayor, about sewage. As we saw on social media yesterday, the Wolseley portion of the river trail uh, was flooded with some sewage because of the Clifton Street outfall. It was a result of uh, combined sewer release of wastewater. And so a lot of people in the city who use that part of the river trail disappointed today with what's essentially ruined their little piece of winter paradise. Uh, so what might you say to them about their concerns that they have? Well, I, I share I share their uh, their concerns. It, I mean, look, combined sewer overflows. Uh, these are these are systems designed decades ago. Uh, they're really gross, and there's no other way to to, to talk about them. It, they're they're kind of one of those uh, those gross legacies from from decades uh, ago uh, that we're working hard uh, to to uh, to get rid of. Um, you know, our our six year capital investment plan, record investments, 180 million dollars into combined sewer overflow mitigation programs. Um, I know in 2013 there was, um, I think, roughly 22 of these kinds of events over the course of the year. By 2019, they were down to 15. Still too many. And, um, you know, I was down on the river with my family um, skating on Friday night and again on Saturday. It's been uh, it's been just a... It's been one of the really... Um, it's just been a, a really nice thing for, for families to be able to do over the course of this pandemic. And so, um, obviously, there's more work that needs to happen. Unfortunately, the CSOs are, are doing what they were designed to do. Um, because, of course, when you get the kinds of events like we had with a melt the other day, um, the way that they're designed is either that that sewage is going into people's homes or it's going into the river, neither of which is acceptable, which is why the combined sewer overflow investments is something I'm very proud to have supported. Um, and why, for those that do care about the health of our rivers and our lakes, the North End Sewage Treatment Plant and those investments, which we're, we're still waiting to get confirmation from the province that they've even forwarded our application to the federal government so that we can get the funding from other levels of government to, to keep going with the investments at the North End Sewage Treatment Plant are so important. And so I would ask listeners, if you care about the health of our rivers and lakes, which I know Winnipeggers do, there's two things. One, urge the province to forward our application to, to Ottawa. And secondly, 5% of the nutrient loading in, in the lake come from, from Winnipeg. There is no um, public understood plan to deal with the other 95%. And that's where members of parliament, members of the legislature can work with all municipalities, not just in Manitoba, but in other provinces and states to really have a coherent plan uh, something I've been pushing for years on at the federal and provincial level. Mayor Bowman, uh, some of that money that will go to funding that North End treatment, uh, sewage treatment plan expansion of service w- will come from money originally designated for transit service and transit improvements. Another $200 million in future transit funding announced just in the last couple of weeks from Ottawa. What assurances uh, do you have from either of your partners in the federal government or provincial government that that money will in fact stay in the transit uh, kitty 
Yeah, I mean, we we were asked by the province um, and and council begrudgingly had to um, transfer uh, a couple hundred million dollars from this transit stream. This is federal dollars for transit uh, to help the North End Sewage Treatment Plant. We did that, but we we said conditionally that you you preserve the remaining 200 million plus uh, funds in Ottawa that are specifically designed for Winnipeg Transit so that when the master transit plan is released in the coming months, we actually can implement it with those dollars. And so we have since had a request from uh, our provincial partners and the provincial government um, to, to transfer that money out of the, the, the transit account in Ottawa, something that I think is really offensive. And, and the attempt, of course, and the fear is that it will be transferred outside of, of Winnipeg, which is not something I, I will support. We do need to continue to invest in transit. The, to answer your question, though, the federal government has been very clear. They want these dollars to be invested in transit, and and we are that that is not the approach that we're getting from the provincial government. In fact, they are saying quite clearly they want that account to go down, um, and 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 it will be depleted if if they get their wish. And I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm obviously fighting that. Mayor Brian Bowman joining us live for a monthly visit. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, sir. Thank, thank you, guys. Have a great day. Stay safe. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb. We just had our monthly visit with Mayor Brian Bowman. You can find that in the audio vault at cjob.com. And since it's Wednesday, we've got our weekly visit with Hal Anderson coming up at 8.37. And then at 8.45, we're going to continue the discussion we began at 7.07 with Marnie Blunt from Global News. And just what is school like during a pandemic? And we'll hear from the gym teacher at Forest Park School. But we start this hour by asking the question, Greg... What's uh, what's that old adage? When life gives you lemons, make lemonade? I think it goes something like that, Brett. It's not all been lemonade for businesses in the West End of Winnipeg. However, it would seem as though it's not as sour a situation as it might otherwise might have been in the midst of this pandemic. Joe Cornelson is the executive director of the West End Biz, joins us now. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. It has obviously been a tough time for many business owners all over the world, let's be honest. But has there been some good news in the shadows of some tough times over the past year in the West End? Uh, well, in the West End, we have continued to see businesses open and, and really take on the challenge of, you know, getting a business going. And, and we've seen about 60 new businesses in the neighborhood, um, you know, taking that challenge on and, and, and really making it through the year despite all of the struggles. So with those struggles, you know, the, do you have numbers in terms of the businesses that did have to close their doors permanently? Yeah, we did. So we actually saw 90 businesses close in the neighborhood and, and, and that's actually, you know, uh, an awful number and uh, a very concerning number and, and something we work really hard to try and prevent happen. Last year we, we introduced, quite a few initiatives to, to, you know, help those businesses. And, and, and this year where we've got, you know, several things on the go. Uh, and then when it comes to new businesses, um, we're working to, to support them too. How many new businesses again, Joe? So you lost the 90, but gained back how many over the past eight, nine months? 60, 60 businesses. So that's, you know, the fabric of a community. We talk often about some of our favorite neighborhoods, St. Boniface or the Corridon Strip or Wolseley. I mean, what's it mean to lose those businesses, first of all, that people might have loved for years because it's so very much part of the identity of a neighborhood? 
Yeah, certainly. You know, a neighborhood like the West End, what makes it so great is is the streets that you can walk down and, and you know, you can go down a street like Sargent Avenue or Ellis Avenue or, or really even Portage. And, and you're walking past, you know, storefront after storefront after storefront, and, and you can kind of experience the grocery stores, the, the barber shops, the, the, little, uh, the little restaurants serving, serving uh, ethnic cuisine. And, um, and when you start to lose those businesses, you start to have gaps in that experience. And, and it can, you know, really, it, it impacts the experience of just sort of, you know, that community feel. So, so holding on to those businesses is, is key to sort of keeping that community spirit alive. Would you consider, is Wall Street, would that be considered West End? Forgive my, my lack of uh, knowledge on the borders of the West End, but would you call Wall Street West End? Yes, Wall and Aaron are both part of our neighborhood, and and you know uh, certainly uh, large stretches of Wall now are also joining that sort of walkable experience. You know, as you see businesses like uh, Barnhammer and and Fabries and and Wall Street Slice and Kombucha, uh, you know those businesses are are really making that sort of walkable feel or bringing that walkable feel to a once industrial area. Yeah, and I was I brought it up because I've been meaning to try this Sleepy Owl Bread, another uh, business that's opened up in the last couple of years. That's on Wall Street, right around Wall Street Slice, I think. But uh, so you're celebrating those businesses that opened in 2020. How are you doing that? Yeah, so this year we're we're uh, or this week rather we're. Uh, holding a little uh, contest. Folks uh, who hop on our website, uh, westendbiz.ca, will find um, will find a listing of all our uh, brand new businesses, and and they can you know uh, go and support those businesses and uh, enter in a draw to win a gift certificate for uh, any business in the entire neighborhood. And of course, our uh, special West End biz socks uh, with uh, the feature, you know, some of the names of our most prominent and, and interesting streets. You know, you mentioned that section of Wall Street between Wooliver and St. Matthews. That's my old hood, uh, like bang on, uh, lived basically right there. And that whole notion of that section of Wall Street being and there was no reason for anybody to walk down that street unless you were going to a very specific business. Use that section of Wall Street uh, quickly, Joe, before we let you go, on how you can create pockets uh, in a neighborhood like that that were essentially industrial or, or light industrial for decades. You know, Greg, last time we chatted, you mentioned that as well, and I think that that's, that's you know, Wall Street is just a great example of of you know, the way that a new business can come to the area. And then all of a sudden, like you continue to see businesses pop up in that area. So um, Barnhammer Brewery came in about five years ago and and really invested heavily in, in the area. And it wasn't long after that that we started to see these other places popping up like Wall Street, uh, Wall Street Slice. And now we're actually seeing Amusing uh, Games uh, will be opening up in that area shortly as well. Uh, and, and so that's the power that new businesses bring to the neighborhood. And exactly why we want to support new businesses coming to the neighborhood. These these new entrepreneurs that see a spark and uh, and want to sort of ignite the potential. That's exactly what we're looking to see in the neighborhood and what new businesses bring. Joe Cornelson is Executive Director of the West End Biz, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Joe, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Greg. And he mentions uh, Barnhammer Brewing is one of the one of the many excellent breweries in the city of Winnipeg. Le Sneak Belgique is one of my favorite beers, and they've got some great names for their beers too, like Grandpa's Sweater.
It's, <laughs> an name of a, it's a name of a beer. <laughs> I've noticed that one. And you know, when I was a kid, that was an auto body shop. Really? Yes. Wow. So it's just been fascinating to see that change in, in the old neighborhood over the last uh, decade in particular. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We're going to continue the conversation on schools in a moment. But, GMAC, I just got to quickly bounce this off you because this has just come across our wire. You see the Habs have fired their head coach, Claude Julien, and associate coach, Kirk Muller? I am seeing that, and it's something Phil Aubrey has been calling for or predicting at the very (laughs) least over the last week or so. The Canadians are in the throes of, uh, they've lost five of their last six games, two in a row to Ottawa. Uh, Yes, in a shootout, uh, one game and an overtime for another loss. But yeah, things are in disarray in Montreal, and uh, they don't waste any time in Montreal making changes when they feel it needs to happen. So, yeah, that's breaking news in the sports world. In the meantime, we know life has been very different for thousands of high school and elementary students this year. Earlier this morning, we shared with you some audio and pictures of a day in the life of kids at Forest Park Elementary School. That's where Global's Marnie Blunt safely observed from a distance a few minutes of class and spoke to several teachers about their experiences, Loren. Like many schools, there's, of course, been a lot of juggling going on in order to find more space. I think it was one class that was moved into the music room, and so then music was moved to the gym for more space. And then gym, well, it turns out for the most part of this year, it's been held outside. And that phys ed teacher is Robert Enns of Forest Park and joins us now. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. You know, gym class, I think all kids say, is one of their favorite classes. But if you put me outside for as many days as you've had, I'm not so sure I would agree, Robert. How many classes have been outdoors uh, in this pandemic? Uh, I think uh, basically every time, uh, all year long. Uh, this deep freeze kind of put me inside, I think, for five days in a row. But other than that, I've been outside. Uh, kids have been, we've all been trucking along and giving it our best effort outside. <laughs> So have you had to just uh, avoid teaching them certain sports in order to comply with COVID rules? Um, it, you definitely have to get creative. Um, it's more so about, from my perspective, the biggest challenge kind of has not necessarily been what sports I can do, but necessarily is like dealing kind of, I'm at the mercy of Mother Nature, right? I wake up in the morning and I feel like a meteorologist sometimes looking at the extended forecast and what the wind's doing and, and uh what the temperature is going to be at this time versus that time because uh, it changes from day to day, it changes from period to period, it changes from hour to hour. So um, not only does do I have to deal kind of with the temperature, but I deal with the wind and with this warm weather that we've had, and then i got to deal with ice now in the backyard, so that kind of provokes, uh, gets some safety issues kind of of my concern. So, Yeah. Rob, when you uh, told the kids that they were going to be spending a majority of the year outside, <laughs> it was September. How have they, A, uh, reacted uh, to the notion of being outside except for that cold snap? And and, yeah. and do you think it's something that you might look at uh, further down uh, once the pandemic is, is over? Because uh, being outside, there's something different, something special about it in my mind. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, when you asked me, like when I found out that this kind of was happening uh, in September, I'm I'm not going to lie, I wasn't ecstatic about it. It was a little bit nerve-wracking, a little bit uh, things going through my head about uh, dealing kind of with, I like to kind of be an organized guy and have have my weeks and months and things like that sort of planned in advance, but 
like I said, obviously with the weather, I can't really do that. So um, to answer your first question in regards to how the kids have kind of, they've been really good. They've adapted well. Elementary kids, I was initially worried that they were kind of going to feel that, uh, you know, that gym outside, they were going to be more focused on the pessimistic, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, and and so have you. Uh, but no, they've been really good. Uh, I think for the big thing, for the big part, uh, because of like restrictions and kids needing to kind of sit in their desk and kind of not be able to move around their classroom, uh, they sort of see that as a, a great opportunity to just get their body moving and, and uh, look forward to that 30 minutes a day that they're uh, going outside with me and kind of, uh, even with the weather, it's, it's more the kids that are, it's more an adult problem, I think, than a kid problem in regards to dealing with the elements and stuff. I, I wondered about that because I know with my own children during that cold snap, there were several days of no recess as well, right? According to the rules, if it's at a certain temperature, there can't be recess. So then getting outside for gym would have been a real bonus, I think, for many of them. And so, you know, Greg, at the point, you wonder how much long-term changes this might lead to. Do you see it being a thing that, say, next year you have a more committed outdoor component, Rob? Um, to be perfectly honest, I haven't thought that far in <laughs> advance. I'm sort of on a... <laughs> uh, but I do see... I ha- Personally, I have no problem being outside. I sort of uh, embrace kind of being outside and all that uh, on a personal level. Um, kind of with regards to the kids, um, kind of to touch on something before I get to your question, like just exposing kids to the outdoors and not really being afraid of it, right? I did a sort of impromptu survey this past, on Monday, regarding, uh, like, how many of you guys went outside over the weekend? Because the weather was fairly nice. Not too terribly many of them did. So uh, if I can, the silver lining kind of in all of this is uh, get outside. You live in Winnipeg, so it's not going to kill you. So. Um, so to answer your question about next year, um, I definitely do see myself going outside more. I went outside anyways quite a bit. Um, uh, now that I'm, for lack of a better word, kind of have to because I don't have another space, um, I definitely do see myself uh, doing that a little bit more. Uh, and kind of, I've kind of learned tricks of the trade along the way and dealing with uh, distractions that might uh, occur outside that wouldn't necessarily occur inside. Yeah, I think back to when to my days as a teenager in school, and if we would have had to go outside, I probably would have been grumpy then because I would have wanted to play <laughs> basketball or whatever. But yeah. as an elementary kid, if you told me, you know what, sorry, we can't do gym class inside today, but we're going to go play outside, I would have been the first one out the door yeah. because I love playing. All kids love playing outside in the winter, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not really a tough sell for the elementary kids. I taught middle years for several years, and uh, I wonder how my conversation with you, with you right now would be a little bit different. I haven't spoken to many middle years teachers, but I know how well they don't dress uh, for winter. So uh, <laughs> the kids have been really good. Uh, ski pants. Uh, it's sort of a phys ed. The phys ed uh, uh, gym clothes has turned from shorts and a T-shirt to ski pants, mitts, and winter boots, right? <laughs> I can't complain. I think that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it was in grade 8 and grade 9 for us back at Isaac Brock. We were outside playing football or soccer, it didn't matter how cold it was. And I, you made a really great point with regard to embracing the winter because I think we've done a better job of that over the last decade or so overall in this part of the world, Rob. Uh, yeah, it's sort of out of necessity. So 
out of necessity, people kind of, uh, like I go out and I do a lot of walking and hiking out. You definitely do see more people outside. Um, yeah, it's great. It's Like I said, get outside. There's nothing wrong with it. The cold won't hurt you. Robert Enns is the phys ed teacher at Forest Park, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Robert, thank you so much for the time. Very much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great day. I wonder, um, although, see, here's the thing. When I went to school, uh, they always piled up the snow. I don't know how it was for you guys, but the snow plows would come in and they'd pile up the snow in the middle of the field, which would then become just sort of, however, a haphazard snow fort or snow hill and then of oh course you, you push people off yes! the hill i don't know what we called that but basically it was push people off the hill get to the top push them down king of the mountain there you go it had a name i knew it but yeah well let me tell you this i know of schools that actually bulldoze those hills now yeah. because oh, it's unsafe for the and they're worried about the snow collapsing yes. they don't want the kids touching each other with this pandemic there's a lot you know what as long as i don't have to do newcomb remember newcomb which was the Weird version of volleyball that you learned before they taught you volleyball? No. Where you just don't caught the ball that. and threw it three times and then threw it over the net? No? <laughs> no. Jeez, that might have been a Minnedosa thing. Wow. I don't think so. Google it. Newcomb. Okay. <laughs> I forgot I must learn about Newcomb. Yes. I'm a newcomer. <laughs> no one to needs Newcomb. to learn it. <laughs> we love sharing more on the amazing authors we have in this province. And our next guest deserves to not only have a light shone on her work, but on the work she's doing to raise awareness to, co- to a cause that is close to her heart. Yeah, and Brett, that author's name is Tannis Richardson, and she's put together this really incredible book called Vignettes of My Life. It's a book that she wrote, by the way, in her mid-90s, so we'll have to ask her later about where she gets the energy for that one. But as it says in the opening, there are two things Tannis has enjoyed in her life. Two key things, telling stories, often with a lesson, if possible, and taking pictures. And so this book is a combination of some of those two gifts she has and is giving to us. And we're pleased to welcome Tannis on this morning. Good morning, Tannis. Good morning. Thank you for so much for taking the time. And just wanted to mention for our listeners, in case your name sounds familiar, uh, just wanted to point out that your late husband, George Richardson, uh, is a name we should also be familiar with. And, and while you had a role in one of Canada's biggest companies and a role that took you all over the world, you've always been really focused on Manitoba and Manitoba charities. So I'm curious what drives your commitment to this province, Tennis? Well, it seems that oh, through my life I've, I've uh, 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 resonated about things that happen just, as you say, at, at home or in, uh, in the community. And, uh, and now that, that COVID has, has made us all uh, hunker down into our little cocoons, um, it's been a great pleasure for me to re- recall a lot of the, of the stories and the people that I've met, uh, either people I've been introduced to or just have met by happenstance and uh, started a conversation and, and learned that we that you know it, it was just a, a very nice uh, uh, way to to, to ha- you know be with people. Well, it's an honor to get to speak with you. So for many of us, I can say this, memories of summer vacations include traveling in the family station wagon or some form of uh, of car where we were probably misbehaving. Uh, maybe it was to the mountains, Disneyland, or maybe back and forth to the cottage. Tell us a little bit about this trip you took down the Nelson River with your family when you were 13. It sounds fascinating. 
Well, it was, and it was the most. Uh, my father was absolutely. He was uh, a, a surgeon, and, and um, of course, in those days, you could just phone your doctor and, and expect him to come and, and to your home and see. So that every time Dad got away, he was called back to you know to uh, his patients. So he uh, devised this trip. Um, with uh, uh, he phoned the Hudson's Bay and they set us up with with uh, freight canoes, three freight canoes, and six Cree guides. And um, I remember that particularly the guides all had had English names like Richard and and Robert and this sort of thing, whereas my name Tanis is Cree and it means daughter in Cree. So here I was, uh, probably an obnoxious little 13-year-old, and, and they thought I was absolutely wonderful because <laughs> I had a, a Cree name. Uh, and so um, we got in these canoes at Norway House and, and uh, with all our provisions, and, uh, and Dad had borrowed a, a, a wireless radio to see, so that we could know if, a, if war was declared. Uh, and uh, so the, off we went uh, with uh, the uh, one of the um, crew, uh, one of the uh, uh, rode rode uh, in the middle of the canoe, and the other one paddled at the back and steered where we were going. I remember one day we did nine portages, which meant you know. Uh, carrying uh, our bed things and all, all our groceries and whatnot on some of them and others the the uh, um, uh, guides would would tie a rope to each end of the canoe and down the rapids they would go and um, uh, so it uh, you know there was a lot. Uh, we, we we were having a wonderful time. My aunt was with us. Uh, she lived in in China, and um, she was home that summer. So there were the six of us, and uh, it was a uh, it was an experience of a lifetime. I'm just flipping through the book here, Tannis. It's uh, Brett McGarry, by the way. And I'm just I'm slightly enchanted by this because of the hidden treasures that you've got in here, like this map of Crescentwood. I live in Osborne Village, so I love walking the the streets of Crescentwood. And the, there's a caption here. One of Winnipeg's oldest neighborhoods is largely unchanged. Just curious to know, do you know off the top of your head how old this particular map is that you've put oh, in this book? Oh, I don't think I could say that. Okay. I, I, if I look, I would know where to look it up, but I can't off the top of my head. But it was, um, uh, well, it, it was just a, a wonderful neighborhood. And, uh, um you know, and in those days, you could go. Children could go out and and be by themselves, or or play, or whatever. And there was no concern about uh, something happening to them. Yeah, at different times, right? When you take a look back at how things were when you grew up, and with your kids, uh, your own kids' tennis. And so, first of all, how many kids do you have? We had four, two boys and two girls. Two boys and two girls. That's exactly the same as my family, and it couldn't have been a more fun uh, atmosphere to have. I'm sure it was far more challenging for parents. Are, are your... well, well, each one had such a different personality that it was it was always a, a, a you know a challenge to to do for one which wouldn't work for another. Yes, I can only imagine with two. So thank you for that. I'll, it's always about perspective, tennis, and and I'm curious how how much your kids are featured in this book, both with the ups and the downs that you've experienced over your life with family. 
Yes, yes. Well, of course, our uh, first challenge was when our eldest daughter, Pamela, was uh, diagnosed with that, with diabetes. Uh, and that sort of put us into a completely different zone as to how we dealt with, with uh, food and her safety and, and, her, and keeping her, uh, you know, having the right amount of insulin and all that sort of thing. I had to pr- improvise different things, um, such as, uh, I had a pad made uh, at the office that I could tally her her blood sugar and uh, and keep track of it. So that you know all sorts of things. When when you're faced with a challenge, you uh, uh, you rise to the cause. <laughs> well, you mentioned cause, and one of the more popular causes, and one of the more popular events every year in Winnipeg. I say for this year, but that, that's a hiatus for everybody right now, is the Starry Starry Night event. And that really is your daughter Pamela's legacy, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Tell us a little uh, bit about it, if you would, Mrs. Richardson. Well, um, after she died, uh, George and I went to uh, Toronto to attend the uh, gala that they were having there. It was a magnificent evening, and of course, Toronto had had uh, um, just it was a lot of people there. And um, so the next mor- uh, morning, I phoned the chairman uh, and uh, said how wonderful it was, and she was a uh, she was a very matter of fact. Um, lady and and uh, uh, I when I stopped, you know, telling her about how wonderful it was. She said, "Well, that's all very well, Tannis, but what are you going to do in Winnipeg?" And uh, so I came home to Winnipeg, and we I thought about it, and um, Don Ferguson, who was uh, head of the Western Division of CBC, uh, phoned me and and said. Um, what are we going to do about diabetes? And I said, who are we? And he said, you and CBC. And uh, I said, well, tell me more. So he said, we're bringing the Royal Canadian Air Force to Winnipeg, and we'll, we'll cover all the costs, and you sell the tickets. So we, uh, we gathered together a, a committee, and we decided to um, price the tickets uh, like Air Vice Car- Commodore, Commodore and, and all down the hierarchy of the, of the Air Force. And we made $150,000. And from then on, we uh, said, well, now we have to do something that's going to be yearly. And so that's when A Starry Starry Night came on. And um, I wanted the name of the event, uh, a song. I thought that that would be nice. And and one of our memories came up with A Starry Starry Night, which was perfect. The name of the book is Vignettes from My Life. All proceeds from the sale of the book will go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And as I mentioned, I'm flipping through it right now. Let me just there. See, I'm flipping through the pages right now, and uh, it is just a lovely piece of work that you have crafted, and it's all going towards a great cause. Tannis, wonderful to to visit with you. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Well, we appreciate thank you the time. so much. I've enjoyed it. Tannis M. Richardson, the author of Vignettes from My Life. And again, proceeds going to the vignettes, or from the vignettes of my life, go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And it is available at McNally Robinson Booksellers, or you can get it directly through the publisher, heartlandgreatbooks.com. 
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon. 911.